What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the ninth installment of the CuffCast, a resource for all films strange, bizarre, sometimes erotic, often peculiar. My name is Cameron McGowan. I'm one of the lead programmers and the host of the podcast. And with me, as always, is producer, co-host, Rhett Miller. Good day. New year. On today's episode, we are extremely excited to have Tiff's Midnight Madness programmer and Fantastic Fest's shorts programmer, the one and only Peter Kaplowski. We are back. Cuff has been busy. What have we been doing? We did uh, Cuff Docs back in late November. That was cool, man. That was nice to be back in the cinema, if only at a reduced capacity. And with Cuff Docs, it's often a reduced, reduced capacity, just in terms of the niche material that we're showing and the fact that it's also available virtually. But we are stoked to announce we are back in person in late April for the 2022 Calgary Underground Film Festival. We'll still be doing some virtual, but we really want to double down on coming back to the cinema this April. Cartoons? They're going to be virtual? I don't know, Rhett. Don't ask me these things. <laughs> I don't I'm know asking yet. the hard-hitting journalism here. We're in the midst of previewing. I've watched so many movies lately. A lot of beautiful movies. Um, I think we're going to have a really beautiful, solid lineup. But uh, i got to admit, reality is strange when you're watching... A minimum of three features a day. Like what we did in film school. Yeah, but then you're balancing everything else too, so it's just great. It is. It's like being 21 again, but for your job. <laughs> but also well having to, you know, juggle what comes with being an older person. <laughs> I don't have too much sympathy. It still sounds pretty good. It's great. I don't want to make it sound like I'm complaining, but I'm just trying to say that life is but a dream <laughs> right now. <laughs> What else are we doing? We're doing an off-the-cuff event for After Yang. So this is the new film from the director of uh, The Beautiful Columbus. And this is a Black Mirror-style sci-fi, modern sci-fi film with Colin Farrell. Really wonderful. It's traveled all over the world. I think it's been doing the festival circuit for like seven months. And so this is an A24 joint. So some folks are definitely going to come down. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be an overall crowd pleaser. It's a very touching and beautiful film. You're a cup of tea if you're listening to this podcast, I'd guess. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I find some people just don't like movies that have the A24 logo on it, which is strange to me because, I don't know, I'm not a brand guy, really. If but they, they've made a brand for themselves, though. Of course, but every brand does that. Well, but I mean, like a Warner Brothers brand isn't as specific as the A24 brand. But the brand. thing is, it's not that specific. It's like everyone thinks it's got this dour stamp, but the motherfuckers made Beach Bum. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They just made Zola. Like, they're making rocking oh, pictures. Yeah, they're supporting great directors and letting them do their thing. They just, you know, have a niche that they're catering to or whatever. Yeah. Of. And I guess with any niche comes a us-first-them mentality with the fans. But I'm here to say, who cares who made it? Just watch the movie. Enjoy it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to like every A24 film, but if there's one that's in my lane, I'm going to drive it all the way. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was like back when we were kids. I guess we're kids at heart still, but... Remember the obsession with collecting the Criterion Collection? Yeah. And not even being aware that Masters of Cinema was putting out, like, equally good shit 
or Kino had these beautiful DVD box sets of people we hadn't even heard about yet because we'd become like so brand obsessed with Criterion and oh, yeah. getting the spines. And I mean, their artwork was so the, the best at the time, hundred percent. Yep. But I think as you get older, you got to get rid of that. But I mean, yeah, mentality. I don't know. I mean, we still see that with vin- vinegar syndrome or Severin release. People like will just get every single one and then complain that some of them are bad or that they don't like them. And it's like this is what you signed up for. You don't have to get every single one. That's like, right. If it doesn't look good to you, don't you don't have to buy a hundred movies a year from exactly. Vinegar Syndrome. That's how I feel about the eight twenty four movies. If yeah. it doesn't look good to you, shut up and don't watch it. There's like there's gonna be someone that it looks great to. Yeah. I'm yeah, just, just happy a, you're bringing it to us to, to see. Exactly, because there's companies making far worse movies than A24 out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're not going, oh, great, another Sony movie. Like, you don't yeah. even pay attention. Like, it's like, who, who cares? Just eat the, eat the meal, you know? <laughs> yeah, good point. All right, well, our guest on today's podcast, Mr. Peter Kaplowski, I had the honor of room and boarding with 10 years ago. Really? At, uh, Fantastic Fest. We shared a hotel together for a solid week, and it was really nice getting to know him. Super intelligent, very charming individual, doing some really great things in the film scene. Not only does he program for Fantastic Fest and the Toronto International Film Festival, he also exec produces for filmmakers such as Mickey Reese and Steve Kostansky. And Peter's also known to dabble in acting sometimes. So it's with great honor that we get to talk with such an important figure in the current genre film scene, Mr. Peter Kaplowski. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. I had mentioned in my preamble that we'd first met sharing a room in Austin maybe a decade ago now. Yeah, was that for South By? Or was it that out? was for Fantastic Fest. So oh, what, wow. What movies were Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning was there. Yes. Oh, and uh, Scott Atkins was in a tense. Miami Connection with Dragon Sound. And Dragon Sound did a, li- a full concert. That's uh, right. At the highball. Yeah, it was it was cool. Man. I it was think my that's first. also where there was like a performance, a karaoke performance of I've Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas with RZA, Nacho Vigalondo, Elijah Wood and Bill Pullman. <laughs> Bill, Bill Pullman. Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Came to rep Casper for the 25th anniversary or something like that. I don't even remember why he was there, but I do know that he there was a, a master pancake show, which is like Austin's Mystery Science Theater 3000 comedy troupe, and they were riffing Independence Day, and uh, Bill Pullman was there as the guest. But I'm like, did he just come to watch people make fun of Independence Day? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember why else he was there. Yeah, Fantastic Fest is weird like that. I remember one year I just kept seeing Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon hanging out because their son's oh, film the VHS. was there. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. And they were just so normal. Like, they're just such a normal family, uh, eating Shake Shack. <laughs> Taking <here>. little <laughs> selfies with their son, so proud or whatever, probably. Yeah. I liked VHS, man. I thought yeah, that was fun. cool. I want yeah. another movie like that. Yeah. So, so, Peter, let's get into your origin story, my friend, because uh, I've, I've known you a little bit for a while. But so when did you first start getting involved with the Toronto film community and perhaps hooking up with Mr. Colin Geddes? I mean, it, it really was a result of the Bloor Cinema, which is a cinema at Bloor and Bathurst in Toronto. It's a, a, almost like a hundred. I think it is a hundred years old at this point. And I got a job working at that cinema as an undergrad at the University of Toronto. And there is a volunteer in the Toronto film community named Harvey Lalonde. 
And everybody in ter- the Toronto film scene knows him because he volunteers for every film festival. He even volunteers for Sundance. So you'll see him in Park City. And he would just come to the theater all the time. And he's a talker, he likes sharing movie opinions. And he would just sit by the concessions area and talk movies with me. And then one day uh, he mentioned that uh, a guy was planning on starting a film festival called Toronto After Dark. Uh, and it was going to be a genre festival that was a lot like this festival in Montreal called Fantasia, which I had recently become a big fan of because I started summering in Montreal during those years and was always going to Fantasia. Uh, so I was really excited about this. And Harvey introduced me to Adam Lopez, who is the founder and director of the festival. And um, after a couple of meetings with Adam, he he just saw my enthusiasm for film and just invited me to, to help as a pre-screener for the short films because he didn't have anybody to watch short films. Because I feel like people always forget about short films, even <laughs> at festivals. Like it's kind of like, oh, we need somebody to take care of that. Uh, even though it's like tends to be where all the submission fee money comes from. Our, our short oh yeah, films. large majority, at least 75%. You know, it ended up being very valuable because I feel like you know, when you're a short film program where people kind of leave you alone, because since you're not, you don't tend to be bringing, curating a slate that is going to be attracting ticket salespeople, you know, most of the public are buying tickets for the features and the shorts tend to be kind of a bonus. Like, yeah, I'll check this out as well. Or you're playing it in front of a feature. So it's like this sort of bonus entertainment, but it kind of gave me a lot of autonomy to just kind of exercise my taste. And um, simultaneous to that, I was doing some work at the university of Toronto. Uh, They had a, uh, a student society called the cinema studies student uh, union. And it was a film society and they showed movies and I participated in that. And I was really into Hong Kong action movies. And there was one guy in Toronto that had enormous amount of prints. And he was the guy that hosted Midnight Madness at the Toronto Film Festival. His name was Colin Gettys. And so I'd email him and say like, hey, can I rent any of your prints? And I started renting those prints and uh, working, so doing shorts at Toronto for Dark. And then while I was working at the Bloor, I also started pitching the people who ran the Bloor to like, let me program a few nights. And I, and, and, you know, I would notice people come to the Bloor cinema. Like one day night, Edgar Wright came to the Bloor to see evil dead. And I stopped him and I said, Hey, what if I convinced the owners of this theater to let you have a Sunday every, uh, every week while you're shooting Scott Pilgrim to just curate whatever you want. And he was like, I would love that. And he gave me his contact information. And then I, negotiated with the Bloor. I set that up. And so because I was doing all these things, it just kind of gave me a bit of a reputation city as, as someone who had a genre film sensibility. Um, I, I was responsible for bringing Troll 2 to, to Toronto. So a lot of people also like associated me with the, like the so bad it's good appreciation movement. You're in the doc, aren't you? Best worst. I am in the documentary. Yeah. The doc came for the screening uh, best worst movie. Yeah. And, and Colin's nickname for me at the time was T2. because of of troll two the only t2 i know um but he that's what he apparently referred to me he's like hey you seen what this t2 kid is doing yeah he's writing kung fu films for me and that's how you know colin and i eventually became friends just because i was always renting film prints from him and uh, eventually he asked me to help him on a film festival that he was working on in north carolina called Action Fest that ran for a couple of years, which I still think is one of the best concepts for a film festival. Oh, yeah. We were chatting with him about that. Actually, we should mention, yeah, Colin Gettys was guest, second guest of the podcast. And yeah, Action Fest, the sad fate of Action Fest. Oh. Yeah. But I've always been obsessed with that festival, just the idea that 
I mean, we never fully committed to this concept, but it was like on the way there. But it was it was basically the idea that it was a below the line film festival. It was a festival in which the guests were action coordinators, uh, second unit directors, That's right. um, armorers, have, pyro guys, like special the best advisors. The best yeah, they stories. Do best stories, zero ego. They will yeah. just tell you everything transparently and honestly what happened on those sets. And it and it, that was extra, you know, extraordinary. Yeah, I wish it was still around too because there's a caliber of action movie that's coming out now that is, I mean, for lack of a better term, elevated action in a way. So it's I like, mean, yeah, I think that the, the direct-to-video market is largely sustained by like action movies that are punching a little bit more above their weight, and it's kind of the, they're kind of the last bastion of action movies that you feel like are actually shot by their directors and not by previs teams. Or, um, you know, that they're not like sort of worked out months in advance of actually shooting the film by like animation companies. And then the director comes in and like just gets what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Just to go back a bit, though, where where were you screening these Prince of Collins? Uh, I, I would screen them at the University of Toronto's Innis, uh, Innis College Cinema, which is called Innis Town Hall. Uh, I would screen them at the Bloor Cinema. I remember playing like Mr. Vampire 3 at the Bloor. Oh, um, I've only seen part one. Yeah, oh, part three is the best one in my opinion. You got to oh, see part three. I think the whole I, thing's on YouTube probably. <laughs> a lot of those now, movies are getting getting pretty accessible these days. Oh, it's but, so good. But uh, yeah, and then, you know, there was my friend set up a cinema called the Toronto Underground Cinema, and I did some print rentals there. Eventually, just got to the point where um, when Colin was uh, looking for an assistant for the Midnight Madness section, I had been working for, for him for three years at that point. And uh, he offered the opportunity and I, you know, was his assistant for a couple of years. And, and then when he was moving on to focus on Shutter and, and other projects, I was the candidate to uh, succeed him. And it was uh, bittersweet to, to experience that transition of an era, but like such a privilege. And, I'm, and, and I mean, I was a fan from Midnight Madness ever since I got kicked out of the lineup when I was like underage trying to get in. You know, I always considered Midnight Madness the state of the union of genre films as, as like a young teenage fan. Like it was like, OK, these are the 10 movies that I feel like people are going to be talking about or that I feel like are going to influence the next cycle of genre films. So, you know, I, I've always tried to, you know, bring that reverence to it and that's kind of my film festival trajectory. But while I was doing that, I um, would befriend a lot of short filmmakers because I've programmed shorts. All, you know, I've never stopped programming shorts. Uh, ever since Toronto for Dark, all the way to Fantastic Fest, I'm always programming shorts, meeting young filmmakers and emerging filmmakers. And I developed friendships and began to produce films with them. So I, I, I produced um, The Interior with Trevor Juris after seeing a short film of his. After Lamp, right? Yeah, it was after The Lamp, yeah. And then... Yeah. Stephen Kostansky, I've had a friendship and producing relationship with him for over 10 years, starting with Manborg, which Colin and I helped release Manborg, then worked on The Void, uh, Psycho Gorman, uh, hopefully Psycho Gorman 2, if all goes well. I know you helped with the comic books for Manborg. Did you help with this? Yeah, uh, I wrote you- I wrote the uh, the Manborg comic with Justin DeClue, who yes. now runs Gold Ninja Video. Are you helping with the Psycho Gorman comic at all, Peter? I wrote one. Of, I wrote, there's a... The, the comic is going to be an anthology comic where you get to um, experience the Psycho Gorman universe from the perspective of members of the Gygax Council. And nice. I wrote uh, a story there called The Last Star Striker, which is kind of like a parody of The Last Starfighter meets like Star Fox. And it's about the dude at the table that kind of looks like one of the last Starfighter aliens named Star Striker 77. And uh, it was it was kind of an opportunity to 
purge all my space battle dialogue that I've ever wanted to <laughs> see in print. And so I'm really excited for that comic to come out. Yeah, I can't wait. I still have my Man Vork comic. We had a few of those for sale at Cuff back in the day. Yeah, yeah. and then and then you know another filmmaker is Chris Nash, who I you know I did uh, I produced two ABCs of Death segments in yeah. the second film, W is for Wish with with Kostansky, and then Z is for Zygo with Chris Nash. And it's not officially announced yet, but I can like tease it here that he ha- Nash does have a feature that is in in development finally, and it's going to be incredibly gross and. Very different. It's both familiar and different. It's it's a spin on a very familiar subgenre, uh, a horror genre that I think has become very popular again. We're sort of experiencing a renaissance of that genre. And I think Nash is taking it in a direction I haven't seen before, which is pretty cool. Man, I loved his ABCs of Death. It was so great to see it. Actually, Kostansky's too. They're two of my favorites. Even not being a Canadian, I would have went, those are my two favorites. Mm-hmm. And they're both from Nice Canadian Boys, produced by Peter. Congrats on that, man. I want another ABCs of Death. I liked that new VHS. I think we I think we deserve another ABCs of Death at some point. You know, I obviously am biased because I was involved with the second one. But I thought the second one was, like, even stronger than the first in terms Miles of... Miles better. Like, everybody, I feel, like, was really you know, passionate, enthusiastic, and really trying to put out their best work in that second one. So I'd, I'd love to see it. I, 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 I've been told that the reason why it probably won't happen is because they got completely burned on piracy for the second one. Like, I think it leaked a day before the, its premiere, Fantastic Fest, and that negatively affected things. But um, it's too bad. I always thought it was a great project. I, I wish it could happen again. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love it for an idea of an anthology film. Um, so let's talk about short films for a sec. Peter, uh, I know a lot of the listeners of our podcast make short films themselves, one day want to make feature films, but in all honesty, what makes a short film stand out for you from the thousands of others that you're watching? What's one that you're like, okay, this has my full attention, has got me a little juiced up? This is very crude, so I don't know if you want to keep it in the, in the episode, but <laughs> a filmmaker once accused me of having dead dick because I've watched too many movies and so that I can only get it up if the movie is just making the weirdest choice. Uh, And because I have, if I haven't seen the choice before, I like it. Not because it's a good choice, just because it's a different choice. Something to be said. It's true. It's true. But but you know what? That's what this generation wants too, though, man. It's like TikTok's a distilled version of, of that very thing, that serotonin release, because life outside is so neutered right now that like, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Our, our dicks are a little dead, but it's not a programming fault. I think it's like just the state of the industry. Well, yeah, we're just tired of the same old dick. kind of like Marvel stuff. Or yeah. Whatever. Like imagine yeah. if you're getting an Antonioni and a Bergman or a yeah, Kurosawa you, you, coming out. You wouldn't be too sick. Yeah. You yeah. wouldn't want to be something you wouldn't new. Have like, you'd be like, okay, that's good. I want something normie. Yeah. Give me something. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, where's the musical? Where's a Mort Nathan film? (laughs) I mean, there's certain things as a programmer that I I look for that's like almost shorthand of like, "Hmm, this person might not be delivering what I'm looking for. And and some of them are like really simple things. Like if your short film opens with a full credit sequence, I'm usually like, "Ah," I mean, certainly there's precedent where it's worked, but oftentimes I'm like, man, this is a short film. People probably aren't going to recognize the cast names uh, unless maybe you did get someone famous to be in it. And then, okay. But I always feel like that you're giving up real estate. I I really feel like a short film is a different mode of storytelling than a feature film. And you shouldn't 
apply the same formal strategies to it. You shouldn't pace it like a feature. Um, you should, you know, it, it's, it's a short subject form. So there should be an, a form of economy to your storytelling. I've loved 30 minute and 40 minute shorts. There are short films that run that long that a hundred percent work. I played a 40 minute short at Fantastic Fest last year called Digital Video Editing, which I think is incredible. But I really do feel like having the conversation with yourself, of, am I telling the story in the most economic way possible is, is one worth having. For me and my personal taste, it's always about just show me something different or show me something new, like challenge yourself from every scene or every shot. Like, how can you tell the story in, in, a, in a fresh way? Or how can you just keep yourself creatively um, challenged and, you know, don't make arbitrary decisions, have every decision be full of meaning because that stuff, you know, reads like you, you appreciate that stuff. I can start a short and immediately be like, I feel like the decisions I've seen are arbitrary. I don't feel like I'm being taken on a story in a deliberate way. And I think, you know, those things can be kind of amorphous and hard to describe, but those are certainly some of the things I definitely look for. Yeah, there was that quote in uh, that Robert McKee uses in Story from Oscar Wilde, where he's wrote a letter that was too long, and he said, "Apologies for the length of the letter. I would have written you a shorter one if I had the time." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it requires. Yeah, it sometimes requires that sort of consideration and like, you know, trying to. And, and you know, another thing I'll say though is that, and this is something more for filmmakers that are like trying to get into film festivals, and then might get immediately discouraged when film festivals aren't playing their first or second short. I think there's too much pressure on your first thing having to be perfect. And also this sort of feeling that like whatever you make has to have an audience or it's not worth anything. Um, and I think that's something that you got to scrub from your head immediately. Like it, it, sometimes making a short film and frankly, sometimes even making a feature film can be just a form of film school and exercise for yourself to get better and make a better movie. I mean, I've pointed to this out a lot of times when I talk to filmmakers, one of my favorite movies the last couple of years uh, was a film by Andrew Patterson called Vast of Night, which is his debut feature, except it isn't. He actually made like two other feature films that have never been released uh, that he just kind of did uh, on the sly with friends. And, and when he finished them, he was like, you know what? I like this movie. I'll show it to people, but I don't think it's my best work. And I'm not, and rather than spend the time trying to get into film festivals, I'm going to work on the next one. And I think sometimes that can be a really good attitude to have where I see time and time again, filmmakers will make something and then they will just spend a whole year trying to get in front of audiences. And if it doesn't come and they will, they'll sink resources into it when I'm like, why, why don't you start planning the next movie and obviously like there are economics to it's not easy to make one movie and then you have to go and make another movie that can be a hard decision to make but then i also feel like you know shoot within your reach too you know you don't have to you don't have to make something that like destroys your credit card the first time out you know sometimes just trying to tell the simplest story with the the simplest of resources is the best training ground yeah it's a beautiful way to summarize it and it actually echoes a lot of the work that you support in your executive producer type role with uh, Mickey Reese and maybe even the Matt Farley films have a similar ethos. Yeah, I don't know if your listeners know who Matt Farley is, but he's a filmmaker in Massachusetts who um, has been making movies for the last 20 years uh, in relative obscurity. More people know him as a singer-songwriter because 
He has written over 20,000 songs and actually earns a passive income from that music because they live on streaming platforms like Spotify and he's getting like half a penny on each listen, but because he has so many songs and because his songs are about so many different subjects, he's just earning this passive income from people largely accidentally stumbling upon his stuff, which is hilarious, but he makes movies too. And he's always just made movies within his group, friend group of communities. He doesn't, he's not really concerned about production value. Um, he leans into the fact that they're cheap movies and, and sort of embraces their camp aesthetics. And, you know, no one was watching them for a while, but over the last couple of years, thanks to, I mean, I've been championing them for, a la- for the last little while, but Justin DeClue at Gold Dungeon Video has been releasing some indie Blu-ray releases of it. And uh, some other comedians are discovering his work and talking about it. I mean, he's got like now a steady audience and he's now decided to start making two movies a year for that audience because it's rewarding. And, you know, Mickey Reese was another example. He's a filmmaker in Oklahoma who has an extraordinary prolific career. And, you know, how he came to make movies is he was in a band and he would play a lot of venues and he started making movies with his friends just for fun. And he would just ask venue managers like, hey, when the set is done, can we just toss this movie on as you guys are like closing, like after all the bands play? And so his audience was just like the 40 or 50 people that were still at those venues before they left. And that was enough for him to keep making movies because they, you know, they enjoyed it. And they were small movies like he would he'd be like, OK, we have access to a motel. Let's just shoot a movie in and around this motel for a weekend. You know, It's largely talking dialogue scenes. He was always like it's windy in Oklahoma. So every scene's going to be largely inside. And, you know, he just made movie after movie until he got better at it and better at it. And now that he's getting resources to make films at a bigger scale, he just really knows how to make a movie uh, like it, it's it's far more intuitive to him. But I, I'm attracted to those filmmakers. I'm I'm attracted to working with filmmakers that have the ambition and don't feel the preciousness of like they have to wait for someone to hand them the opportunity or they have to wait for the perfect resource pool. Like I've talked to some filmmakers that say they won't make their first feature until they get given $7 million to do so. Cause it has to be perfect. And I'm like, uh, you know, we, I mean, that's fine. I think it's a viable strategy because you look at filmmakers like Ari Asher, who's a terrific filmmaker, but it took him like eight years to make hereditary. Uh, it, it, it has a, there's a lot of patience there. And I think that is one run road. I'm, I think I'm more attracted to the people who just like go out and do it. I, I, I'm interested in supporting those people. Oftentimes, because I think their films, sometimes their early stuff doesn't necessarily look commercial, is maybe a little rickety or awkward in places. But I do think that you can sometimes see a purity of vision or see an originality of expression there. And so I'm... I've made it sort of a mission for myself to try and identify some of these artists and and try to support them as kind of like a creative manager and producer. And it's something I've been about as passionate about as as my work as a curator in, in film festivals. Well, and bless you for it because, yeah, the true spirit of art always lies with the outsider regional filmmakers who are doing it for the art. I love the idea of like just doing it because you love to do it and not because you want to be famous, not because you want to direct you know, a big budget comic superhero movie. I mean, like those are not, I'm not saying those are bad goals. Uh, like, I don't think it's bad that if you want to direct a Star Wars or a Marvel movie, I mean, who, you know, I, I would love to to work on a Star Wars movie, of course. But I think if that's the only reason you're doing it, then it's, it's probably a mistake. Yes, harsh but true words. All right, we're going to skip forward a bit just because I really want to chat PM Entertainment. So we had <laughs> we, we had Brett Berg on the podcast. Wow, what a lovely individual. Yeah. I love Brett so much. And I might have called Brett Joe once or twice because they kind of look like Joe Yannick. And, I'll, and uh, 
it was my bad. I weren't wearing my glasses. So, so Brett, if you're listening, I know I apologized for it once. I'm going to apologize <laughs> for it again. Um, but Brett has this great article on PM Entertainment movies. And Arette and I had watched a couple, and then I'd read this article and got a whole new appreciation for it. And so I was like, hey, Brett, let's talk PM Entertainment. He said, I can't. The true sensei of PM Entertainment is Peter Kaplowski. So what? Have hang on a second. Did you just mistake Brad and PM. Joe again? Because because did I do it again? Did Joe Yannick wrote the PM Entertainment article? I did it, dude. <laughs> I fucking did it again. It's this thing in my head. So there I go. I'm no, that article is amazing. It. I feel like Joe, Joe Yannick wrote article, it. Though it's so kind of him. I mean, maybe Brett did. Brett, do you know if Brett said? Brett might have shared it. Okay, so Brett might have shared it. Sure. Joe wrote it. You see the tiny little face sharing it with the yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah. long hair. You see the tiny little face <laughs> on the article. I think you've just explained how the wires got crossed, Peter. I think yeah. I've just figured it out. Whoever whoever said that I'm the patron saint of PM, I I very much appreciate that. I do feel like Joe deserves a ton of credit because I do feel like that article that I think was on hopesandfears.com. It was the oral history of PM Entertainment. I think that really blew the doors off, at least film Twitter and like more cult cinema groups, like really beginning to appreciate the madness that was PM, uh, a company that for, I mean, did you guys, have you guys talked about it on the show before? Yeah, so here's, here's what- Yeah, we gotta we'll set it up here, date. we gotta set yeah. it up. Okay, so we wa- I obviously have seen Skyscraper. Is that an official PM Entertainment film? It is, it's one of the last ones though. Actually, I want to quickly talk about Skyscraper. Have you guys, have you guys seen the, the Paul Thomas Anderson, Ben Affleck uh, SNL bit where Skyscraper's in it? Where what? Ben uh-huh. Affleck is wit. So Paul Thomas Anderson directed this bumper commercial ad back in the day of SNL. And it's Ben Affleck and he's obsessed with Skyscraper and Anna Nicole Smith. <laughs> and he's won a date with her. And he's like, I just want to make her my mom. I can't wait to make her my mom. And then they show flashbacks of... Uh, Skyscraper, it's it's Molly Shannon pretending to be Anna Nicole Smith <laughs> with these giant fake nails and just nailing the delivery. Um, it's on archive.org. You have to click through the full episode to watch the bit, but I, I, I totally recommend it. Okay, oh, so we've wow. seen that one. We rolled the dice on Repo Jake, and it was not that great, but then did a Gary Daniels double feature of Recoil and Rage. Oh, and, and Rage. Yeah. Recoil for me. The I was better. rage. Yeah, I liked rage a bit <laughs> more. So but, good. but after those two, it was like, okay, what is this company all about? Because they're not like canon in the way that they're like, they're dangerous car guy movies in a way, you know, like. Yeah, they're feel- stunt driven. They're like meat and potato genre movies. So there, there is that, there is that canon hyper commercial aspect to them, but they definitely have their own sensibility. And certainly there should be a documentary and t-shirts <laughs> with their logo. Well, is the reason why there hasn't been a lot of PM releases because they edit everything on video and there's no negatives that survive? So none of these so rep he, companies can scan them or what? On this. There are some companies that I've spoken to that actually they confirmed to me and then they kind of backpedaled, but they confirmed to me that they had negatives for all this stuff. So really? that there is there is, I think there could be a possibility someday of someone going in and actually restoring not all of them but but a lot of these PM entertainment movies. But that is one of the issues, but I think it, it's going to be an expensive proposition. It's like when they HD'd Star Trek, you know, like all this stuff was cut for broadcast, so it just requires a lot of money to rescan. Uh but for the most part I mean, especially some of these PMN movies that probably have CGI that was like rendered for, for broadcast. Interlaced. But like, I know like uh, there was that Beyond Dreams door that Vinegar Syndrome restored. Yep. They had the negatives there. They were missing like 
10 minutes or something of, and they use a video source for that, but then otherwise they recut the movie to all the negative. So yeah, if I they think did it for I that think, no I think, budget I think homegrown movie. I mean, there's yeah. also there were there were some DVD um, releases that actually were widescreen releases of PM movies. So like okay. there are sources that are at least not the full frame. I mean, I and and you also have to re- believe that like they probably for some of these movies, even though they were made for the straight to video market, they were probably striking the odd distribution print for like a film market or something like that to to show um, prospective buyers uh, like you'd have to imagine that some of that would have happened. So what are some of your favorites outside of recoil rage, Peter? Oh, the sweeper is definitely one of my, Oh, what's that one? Who's, who's in that one? See Thomas Howell. Oh, nice. Okay. He wears a house of pain, uh, hat for like a bunch of, bunch of the movie. Let me tell you something, buddy boy, nothing's safe in this world. He told his son the truth. your whole family now i'm gonna kill you he survived now he's a cop who can't kill enough killers i know you'd like to find the murderers of your family believe me i can help have you ever heard of j.i what's j.i stand for justice incorporated they told him the rules going in no way out but there are no rules for the sweeper. Uh, it has one of the most ludicrous premises I've ever seen of a PM entertainment film or action film, that matter. It's about a hard-boiled cop who's like divorced because, uh, you know, he's kind of like a shitty dad because he just cares too much about the job. Uh, it opens with, uh, with a, an incredible sequence where his dad... Um, stops some bad guys, but then gets killed for it at home. And it has this insane car chase that's across an LA pier that has got to be like five miles long because it just never ends. Like they're like it's just a pier, so it should like end in about a minute of run, minute of driving. But it's, it goes on for five minutes, and they're just like constantly driving forward. <laughs> You're like waiting for this pier to end. Um, and that which sounds like it's out of a Fast and the Furious film. Which yeah, yeah, Spiros, exactly. It's like, it's was like Spiro's like, on this one? Is it that Spiros is on, I think, on this one. Spiros is on a lot of these movies. Uh, Spiros, like a lot of the Fast and Furious car stunt guys really cut their teeth on PM. And, you know, it's funny. I've, I've spoken to some people who've worked on PM movies, like someone who used to AD a lot of them. And they said that, like, it's a, it was just wild. It was the last era of when you could make a movie in L.A. and blow something up and didn't have to worry about anyone thinking that it was a terrorist attack or something like that. Like, it was right. just like oh, they're just making movies in Hollywood. So like, and they shot stuff without permits. They would just like, they would just blow a building up and everyone would go like, ah, it's probably a scheduled demolition or they're making a movie. Like no one would, no one would think that like, oh, this is like some kind of terrorist attack. So they got away with so much on those movies, but the sweeper, you catch up with the guy, you know, he's, he's a a shitty dad and you know, a hard boiled cop and he chases a perp down. Who's like a convicted pedophile or something. And he, he uh, kills the guy. And he then gets approached by a shadowy agent that says, hey, you've killed your ninth guy in the job, which means you're now eligible for a super special 
underground police force that only the government knows about called Justice Incorporated. Oh no! Achievement and, unlocked. And I'm gonna spoil the movie slightly, which I don't. I don't think it matters too much because it's you know it's it's a PM Entertainment action film. But like he starts working for Justin Justice Incorporated and he's killing drug dealers. And then he realizes that Justice Incorporated is not actually an American sanctioned company. They lied to him and they're just other drug dealers that are getting him to kill. Drug dealers. <laughs> it's funny because you realize, wait, like he just was so bloodthirsty that he didn't stop to think about how they, this is probably not a legit organization because they're like paying him in sports cars, giving him a mansion giving him tons of money but so it's a ludicrous action oh. film it has an amazing very post tarantino monologue where one of his um contacts for this organization gives a speech about honeycrisp cereal or honeycomb cereal like it's like a long monologue about honeycomb cereal that's like a full tarantino style monologue and it doesn't have a punchline like she's about <laughs> to say the punchline and then like there's like a raid that comes in. So you never hear the punch. <laughs> That's awesome. It takes like three minutes for her to set oh, it up. Oh, I got to find this. They, there used to be so many on Amazon Prime, but I think most of them have moved to Tubi. Yeah, Sweeper's great. Hologram Man's one of my favorites in terms of science fiction stuff. Here's a good, here's a good uh, rule of thumb when it comes to PM. If you're in the mood for high concept science fiction, check if Richard Pepin directed it. Because he's the guy that does all the effects-driven ones. So... Um, and Mary, he is the car stunt guy. Uh, Joseph Mary is more the, it's going to be more stunt driven car stunts, uh, more visceral, more boots on the ground, kind of a rough and tumble where, where Pepin is more special effects and high concept. Hell yeah. And so Mar Mary's stuff is very good. Like you guys liked Rage, but I also recommend Riot. Yeah, I watched, I watched that for Christmas there. It's got the Christmas feel. It's, it's, it's their Christmas movie. Uh, <laughs> you also begin to realize that the PM Entertainment is a shared universe because the news reporter in Rage and Riot are the same actor. I think he also appears in The Sweeper as well. And uh, they all work for the same news organization. <laughs> so like there is this kind of shared universe that's going on across PM Entertainment movies, which is pretty funny. That's oh, amazing. But there's like, box set. there's 50 different Gary Daniels in this universe though. Not enough oh, yeah. though. There needs even more. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, Private Wars is kind of fun. It's like a gentrification storyline where like there's this sort of impoverished block in New York and uh, it's either New York or LA or an LA playing New York rather. Basically these, these corrupt drug infused like rich people are like trying to take over the town so the or take over the neighborhood so the neighborhood has to like band together. Um, and how they're taking over the town is they're just basically getting gangs to come in and giving them RPGs so they can just blow up like supermarkets and stuff like that. Um, and oh. so they, they, they have to set up like a task force to like protect the town, like a neighborhood watch. And they have like additions. There's like addition scenes. Like oh. it, it's, it's, it's oh. pretty silly. Um, I got to watch this. Yeah. Pe Pepin's T-Force is pretty fun too. It's kind of like a Terminator squad movie. It's like a bunch of cybernetic soldiers, but yeah, Sweeper so like is definitely one of my favorites because it's just full of crazy action sequences. It goes from day to night to day in, in a single car chase at one point. Yeah. It's, it's pretty ludicrous. Did, so did like, did the money run out at some point and they kept it going kind of like Canon or whatever? Cause like, it feels like, you know, Repo Jake or even Skyscraper, like those are like bottom of the barrel in terms of yeah, budget. Yeah. I think like, the money was running yeah. out because the video market was changing too. Like, I think there was a period of time where they, they could basically, there were so these blockbusters, what have you would, would, you know, they would buy these videotapes and these distributors were able to secure 
you know, a sale of like a million, $2 million. And they like, we know we will hundred percent make $2 million because all these video stores will buy these many units. And therefore that would set the budget. And so they would make the film for that amount of money. And then, you know, honestly, like union laws and, you know, were different back then specifically, especially for probably stunt work and stuff. You know, I think there's a reason why you don't see like uh, lots of crazy car and stunt driving in independent movies anymore. That used to be like, the thing like when you watch an independent movie in the 70s you'd be like listen we don't have any money but we all have we have cars and we can like run cars off you know stuff like and, a vigilante like, force like, or action like usa that, yeah and that, yeah i feel yeah. like you just can't can't get away it's it's harder to get away with that kind of stuff uh these days and you know probably for the better i mean like oh yeah people like, were hurt people were hurt you know and people are being hurt now for way less stuff like yeah, smaller yeah. stunts so yeah. but like yeah in recoil like there was a scene when like the, the car like gets jumped off the road and it like hits the top of a lamppost like it's like you know that's not planned like it's just like so unpredictable like you're saying movies feel pre-viz now whereas that one like you just don't even know what's going to happen when they're filming it even you know like yeah. they never know what angle a car is going to hit off a ramp it's so like they the shoot same, it from it's the 10 same joy you get from jackie chan movies well, the, when you watch enough pm movies notice this you'll see that um they're big fans of reusing the same helicopter explosion. There's like a helicopter that blows <laughs> okay. up that they use all the time. Trauma style. Um, the trauma yeah, car. Yeah. Trauma style. Uh, they also do have a couple stock stunts that are trauma style, but also just the setup for the stunt. It'll like the classic PM move is the is the ramp behind the car and then the car will <laughs> go off the ramp and then it'll it'll corkscrew. Like they're all about the corkscrew spin. <laughs> and the yeah. other thing about PM entertainment movies, if there is a glass table in a scene, Someone is going to go through that table, like or a glass window. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could play a drinking game with how many Chekhov's glass window. Yeah, gla yeah. They're all about defenestration and table breaking. Like, there's so much of that in PM movies, um, and it almost feels like it's by the like it was just like a rule where like every five minutes something has to explode. Yeah, and they just delivered, and that's why I'm so surprised that there's just like zero footprint of PM anywhere. So I thought like it has to be a rights thing, or be, or if it's the I'm pretty sure the company yeah. FilmRise has the rights at the moment. They're on a lot of them were on Amazon Prime. I don't know if they're not. So maybe they got all pulled recently, but I think a lot of people shifted to Tubi because you get more money from the ads on Tubi than the overall fee from Amazon Prime. But back in the day, Amazon Prime had over 70 p.m. entertainment movies. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they must have shifted to Tubi or something. I see there's Rage is still on Prime, though. And, um, oh, wait, no, it says it's unavailable. Wow, uh, yeah, they them. Hopefully, y'all listened oh, to Rage when we told you to. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. those Gary Daniels Because Rage is basically like Crank, you know? Like, yeah. yeah, dude. With a, <laughs> kind of a like kindergarten a teacher. Crank, yeah. Like, they inject a dude, and he's just angry all the time, so he beat people up. And then they have that fight in the p.m., entertainment video store there's like a fight at yes. a video store and it's all only pm entertainment movies and this guy was just teaching a kindergarten school like an hour before and yeah. then he's driving a bus dead on with the semi truck yeah. and jumping off the bus and in like, the yeah, same they do, outfit they do they do the matrix gag they do the matrix yeah. gag where they have two semi trucks yeah. hit each other yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, the, and gary daniels just looks like the most normal nice dude too like <laughs> yeah. this isn't like a, this isn't a seagull type amazing presence um yeah just like yeah. your dad like like the best dad that could also beat up anybody <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's something so posh about him in a really amusing way yeah um I, you know if you're fans of pm entertainment the other company of that era that i would uh seek out um they were less prolific than pm but seasonal seasonal films they were a seasonal. hong kong company 
And they, at, at, in around the time of PM in the, in the early 90s, they pivoted to making American action films with American casts, but v- with a Hong Kong sensibility. The performances are always really lousy, but the action is, from a martial arts perspective, just unbelievable. The, the, the no retreat no surrender film oh yeah oh uh, those are great, great. three, so three oh, yeah. blood brothers is particularly great where it's the it's one cool. where george hw bush is in the movie really they, yeah there's a part where the terrorists aim a, a missile launcher at george hw bush and it's actually george hw bush getting off a plane and you realize oh, the yeah, filmmakers the filmmakers drove to the airport when the president was coming shot footage of the president coming and then put like a targeting <laughs> radical over his head like what? it's crazy that's it's like some bow finger kind of shit yeah, yeah it feels like they totally <laughs> bow fingered it i have no like there's no way that george bush sanctioned himself to be what? in this shitty action movie but it's actually oh. no i remember the first one's like quite emotional as a kid it really had an oh, impact yeah. on he's me. like a big bruce lee fan it's in seattle i think blood brothers and... has a way more of a miami connection vibe okay. with, yeah, legit, yeah. with legit martial arts yeah, seasonal. Oh, Got to see some seasonal. seasonal. Soup, but uh, Super Fights is one of their one of their top notch ones. It's such a good uh, action film. And then Gary Daniels' Blood Moon is okay. Really oh, nice. Blood Moon is about a serial killer that is only targeting martial artists. So what? Like, it's so like every every serial killer attack is just another martial artist. It has <laughs> maybe one of the funniest close like last minute I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, like it is such an outrageous freeze frame ending you got to see blood moon it's really okay. really good yeah frank gorshin is in blood moon too is like the commission commissioner the chief chief of police um oh hell yeah here it is uh the the, the i think gary <laughs> daniel's covered. sidekick in the movie uh is like a cop that does magic like, on the side <laughs> so he's always doing like magic tricks and stuff yeah blood moon is great awesome. uh definitely gives you like whereas where pm is more about the pyro uh, and the big, big stunt work. This is more martial arts driven. I will say another good PM recommendation is Dark Breed, another Richard Pepin film. Spiros does an incredible stunt sequence that I actually think is where is the, it is the primordial origins of the vault chase from Fast Five. Oh, it's where they, wow. It's where they pull a satellite dish off a, I think a building or maybe even a truck and they're dragging the satellite dish as they're driving, and the hero is on the satellite dish. You kind of like using it as a bit of a surfboard, shooting oh. at cars. But the way they like use the satellite dish as a weapon because they'll like spin and like have the the dish kind of slide to the side and knock oh. another car off the road. Like it is totally a. It, it totally feels like the vault sequence. Yeah, Spiro's like, "Don't worry, I got this. <laughs> I got this vault stuff." Well, Peter, thank you for the new obsessions and thanks so much for joining us, man. I know you're super busy getting Tiff Midnight Madness in line for September. Yeah, already already working at it. And I got to say, I have I've started watching some stuff and I've started I've I've had some early meetings, but stuff that's coming my way. And there are a couple movies that I don't think anybody really knows about that uh, I'm personally very, very excited to see. I think they and I really hope that I like them um, because if 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 these filmmakers have made good on, you know, the promise I think they show, uh, I think it's gonna be a very exciting year for midnight this year. Oh, hell yeah. You always bring it, man. You always bring it. I will mention too, that if any of your listeners come to Toronto and not in September, but any other time, I'm actually starting a monthly midnight series at the Bell Lightbox in Toronto. It is a series where we're going to be showing alumni titles that have played previous midnight madness in the past. So from 1988 till now, anything that played midnight madness, we're going to get to it at some point. 
but we're also uh, postulating what might have played Midnight Madness if there was a Midnight Madness in say like 1972 or 1968 or 1954. Very cool. Did you just kind of like let's expand the canon of like what Midnight movies are and 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 uh, and and talk about you know un, unsung films. The film first film I'm showing is one of those unsung movies. It's a film called The Plastic Dome of Norma Jean which you can't see anywhere. So if you're in Toronto on February 26th, it's like a rock and roll movie about a psychic who joins a rock and roll group and starts getting exploited for her psychic powers. But it's not available anywhere. Like I, I could never see this film until UCLA found a print of the film. It was independently produced in the 60s by an independent uh, filmmaker, Julian Compton. Sam Watterson's first performance is in the movie. Oh, wow. The music's awesome. It looks great. It kind of has the flow of like, a dream sequence like it just never feels like you're watching reality uh very very cool unsung film that i i absolutely think would have played midnight madness in the 60s or that hell yeah is there a name for this program peter yeah we're just calling it midnight madness presents for now i think initially i've just set up the rules that i want to play either a midnight alumni film or a film that i'm kind of like nominating to be a midnight madness movie from before 88 but over time i think it'll just be a capsule thing for lightbox to brand anytime there's something that I feel like would appeal to the midnight audience. Hell yeah. Well, keep fighting the good fight, my man. You, uh, it's always exciting to see what you're supporting and advocating out there. And I know the indie scene really appreciates it as well. You guys do it as well, man. I'm a big fan of, of Cuff and I hope to uh, come down one year. Beep, 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 beep. Golden Boys Report. Special announcement. Special edition. New York Ninja, Globe Cinema, February, whatever the date was. Abductions of young women are still being reported. Another woman with mysterious radiation burns has been discovered. We're gonna have a baby. Oh my God. I can't believe that John's wife was murdered. You have to try and pull yourself together. This city owes me. Well, what's that? Justice. New York Ninja, man. That was a lot of fun. So yes, a very unique release from Vinegar Syndrome. They made their name for transferring old films. They have a 4K transfer scanner where they're scanning all of the prints for, you know, Severin, Troma, all these different companies. But they happened upon this raw negative footage of a film that was never completed. So it was shot, but they ran out of money. So they never, ever finished it. It was kind of an abandoned project. So the great minds, Joe Rubin and, and the gang over there decided to finish the film. Of course, there was no surviving audio element, so they had to build that all from scratch. But what they did was they got, you know, Voyager to do the sort of synth heavy score. So good. So good. Great, great score. That's period of the time. Like it's it, the score you would want. It was like, yeah. the, I don't want to cut you off, but that's what I thought this movie did great with the reconstruction of it. It was really reconstructed with fans of movies like Miami Connection or L.A. Wars. Yeah, it wasn't making fun of it like you'd expect other people to maybe take a harder... No, like the dubs felt like they were from the script. Yeah. Uh, It very felt much of the time. This wasn't like a What's Up Tiger Lily version. Like it, It felt very much like one of those films, but with a better pace, almost. Like they were able to trim some of the fat that may have been added for the home video market. Yeah, and even the edit feels a little smoother, like they tie it together nicely. 
Although the plot still doesn't make a ton of sense with some stuff, but I think they salvaged. Plutonium man. Yeah, there's some random. Some tells me they didn't. Sh that, that's where they abandoned it. Was around the plutonium plot. Yeah. Like there's not a lot of footage of that. <laughs> what does exist is. Yeah, Very so, bizarre. So the, the film is mainly just a, a ninja in New York who's avenging the death of his fiance, and he's sort of, it's, it's kind of like a death wish, but with a ninja, and a little- Spider-Man. Yeah, it was like kind this of Spider -Man geeky death dude, wish. Yeah. his family's dead, and he has these powers that he decides to use for good in the name of the fallen. Wears a little costume, jumps from trees. Goes on roller skates at one point for some reason. Yeah, works for a newspaper or a, or it's a it's a video journalism. So <laughs> where they happen to be at every single crime, and they're they're like this crime is so terrible, but yet they're just filming it. Yeah, know? that was wild. It like had these Nightcrawler vibes, like that Jake Gyllenhaal movie <laughs> yeah. about the darkness of these types of folks. <laughs> but it was played for laughs. It was like yeah. keep rolling, ha, yeah, ha, keep rolling. Oh my it's god, it's like you're watching something just attacking horrific. this poor woman. Keep rolling. It's like what? <laughs> you're yeah. supposed to be a hero here. Yeah. So perhaps intentional satire, perhaps unintentional, but. Yeah, it's, and, and yeah, so like going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's like you don't know, like you want them to be true to the so source material and not make fun of it, right? And some of the dialogue you're like, that has to be kind of maybe making fun of it, or maybe taking it a bit too far. But then when you see like Plutonium Man and all this weird stuff, like all these kids yeah, helping you're like, rescue. No, there's no way. This is a surreal film. They, were, they would have played this up. Like yeah. the sounds match the lips. Yeah, like Dial Code Santa or whatever. Like it feels like it's like, kind of like it's kind of an adult movie but kind of a kids movie and just doesn't really know what it wants to be but it's amazing because it's all of those movies yeah. in one yeah but, really beautiful work by the team at Vincent and so then what what they did is they got Voyager to score it but then they also got a whole bunch of like celebrated sort of 90s 80s b-movie you know, stars to redub all the voices. So you've got Don the Dragon Wilson as the main character. You've got Linnea Quigley and uh, Cynthia Rothrock doing voices. The bad guy is Michael Berryman. So a lot of fun, like even just picking the voices out and seeing, you know, the love that everyone has for these types of movies like Miami Connection and those kind of lost films that never had an audience until now. So it was awesome. It was so awesome. I hadn't ordered it because our friend Cody, who programs at the Globe, was saying, just come watch it. You're going to want to see this with a crowd. Obviously, I am. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I bought the Blu-ray immediately. I was like, I got to know all the stories. Yes. I need to know all of the stories. I need to know how they did this, not only to be inspired, but just for the knowledge, man. It's just such a creative, authentic way of approaching like a remix. Yeah, and I hope they do more. Like, they hope they revive and, you know, restore movies that never did get a chance to be featured. Well, they do promise L.A. Ninja at the end. So <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. this is a real thing. But in the meantime, yeah, check out New York Ninja. Golden yeah, Boys so can recommend this film. Vinegar Syndrome has it put out a Blu-ray so you can get it from their site and it's a really nice custom box and it's their first of their line Vinegar Syndrome pictures that they're producing the films that they're distributing as well. So great stuff all around. stuff a lot of black friday stuff's been coming in i know you've been a little more thrifty so you'll get a streaming pick as well thank you thank you for being so generous yeah uh, 
So yeah, my watch pile, man. The, we got that uh, Woodlands box set, all haunts be ours. Yes, we've been diving deep into that one. The Shaw Brothers set from Arrow came came to my doorstep. Twelve Shaw Brothers movies, some of the finest ones, some that we showed at uh, our Cuff Kung Fu marathon. Yeah, Cam is basically keeping the post office alive in the Southwest there. Yeah, they probably talk about me. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to the hardworking uh, delivery package workers out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, what do we got? What do we got? What should I pull out first? Okay, I'll pull out this one first. It's from Eureka. They do some fine, fine releases. And it's two of Sammo Hung's finest films, Warriors 2 and The Prodigal Son. <laughs> I will control this town. Once I become the mayor of this town, we can make a fortune. Warriors 2, a trail of death and destruction results from one man's burning greed for power and money. Coming soon to this theater. Don't miss it. Dude, I just watched Warriors 2 again last week. Is there a Warriors 1? No, because <laughs> there's two Warriors. Oh, okay, okay. This is the ultimate Wing Chun movie, man. It is crazy some of the stunts they pull off. I was sending you some clips when the dude's fighting cross-legged or they're oh, kicking right, yeah. through tables. The end, the, the master dude is fighting with a bear trap attached to one leg. What? Again, six dudes as he's dying, sitting there blocking all this stuff. It's amazing. And Sammo doesn't do the best in this. He's kind of playing folly to second wing to the Casanova Wong. But he's funny, so charming. And it's kind of amazing all the fat jokes that were thrown Sammo Hung's way back in the 70s when he wasn't actually that fat. Like, he became fat. Could have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. But there's so many jokes about, oh, fatty, and it's like, he's maybe 10 pounds over his BMI, you know? Like, well, I, that's what it was like then. I think of the Bad News Bears movie, the oh, yeah, Burger right. or whatever. They're like, he's, he's so fat or whatever. They're making yeah. all the fat jokes about him. He's like 10 pounds over. Yeah, they were, hard, they were harder on yeah. plus-size people back then. They were. But Prodigal Son is so good. Samuel really pulls off some awesome stunts in this one. Yun Bao is in it. I'd seen that one before. And I swear I'd seen Warriors 2, but I'm pretty sure I'd only seen some clips on YouTube because uh, there's some super funny stuff that connects it in between um, the amazing martial arts. And I swear to God, the last 40 minutes of this are all fighting. So they're on a vengeance mission. There's three of them, and it goes, you get one big baddie. You get the other big baddie. I'll get the third big baddie. And then it's 10-minute set pieces of their, like, one-on-ones right. with cool-ass weapons. I love it. And it's full of amazing special features. How's man. the second one, Prodigal Son? Prodigal Son is, I haven't revisited it, but I remember the DVD from back in the blockbuster days, and I swear it was a U.S. trimmed, dubbed version. Oh, uh, okay. So I'm going to say I haven't properly seen it. I've seen the fights. Right. There's some very iconic Samoan fights in this one. But I have not, I'm not, I'm going to save my opinion on this one. Okay. Folks love this movie, though. I think people are buying it yeah, for that okay. one. Oh, okay, so you got the other one. But I, I, yeah, Warriors 2. Both man. together. And then yeah, and Eureka's been putting, yeah. Eureka and 88 Films have been putting out some amazing martial arts movies and giving them the royal treatment in the UK. So these are sadly Region B, but 88 Ooh. Films 88 Films has been doing some uh, Region A 
releases. Okay, good. So they're very expensive, but they have been doing them. Come on, it's 2023. Hardly anyone's buying physical media. Why don't we just open I'm the team doors? region free players, so uh, cry yeah, me a but river. You, but no, but I mean, you still have to have that player set up on the TV you want to watch it. That's a modern problem. It's not even an, that's not an issue. You want to go? To, you want to go to your? You, you know, you're going away. On I don't a care. Vacation. I switch an HDMI cable. That's all it takes. It takes one. Yeah, but you're gonna take the your player with you when you go to grant your. If I'm going on vacation, house, yeah. But if I'm going relatives. to my parents' house, my kid's gonna be there. I'm gonna be watching DVDs of Hotel Transylvania shit anyway. I'm not bringing the Eric Romer. <laughs> what set. if there's a better Hotel Transylvania in Region Two? You know, that's <laughs> locked out. The director's cut. You know. More That's sandwich. a problem I don't mind having. <laughs> okay, yeah. What do you got first, Red? Um, uh, I got a film I watched in the video store days, but maybe I hadn't seen it fully until this beautiful new transfer from Severin, and I'm talking about the curiously titled Night of the Demon. Those horror stories you heard about in the forest, they're true. They're all true. Officials found a camera with this film in it, but no trace of the people. We believe that there is a creature living in these mountains. And possibly a close relative to man. We're already in Bigfoot territory, where all those people were killed. Not far from here, a motorcyclist was found. There was no trace of the thing that killed him. The Bigfoot's not playing games anymore. Maybe next time he won't be happy just to scare us. Where it's not really a demon, it's just a straight up Bigfoot. <laughs> and he is... Uh, it's not really prowling at the night, but yeah, probably the craziest Bigfoot movie I've seen. And I love Bigfoot movies. I make my wife watch them all the time, forced her to watch this one. And when we finished watching it, she was like, that was insane. I'm glad because usually the Bigfoot movie, she's so sick of the template of like- They're usually boring. People going out. It's a nature kind of doc. So, I, I like that stuff, know. you know, it's usually in- Legend of Boggy Creek being the ultimate of it, the nature yeah, doc or Sasquatch, Sasquatch film. There's Willow Sasquatch. Creek. Yeah, yeah. So and then they're like fun. They're chill. In, in the BC wilderness. There's some Canadian content there. But anyway, this one is not like that. And so my wife was quite impressed this with This is a gonzo-ass movie. I don't want to ruin much. I picked this up too. So now Severin's proudly saying they've restored the dick rip to its ultimate extremity. So we can talk about the dick rip because oh, sure, they have yeah. clips of the dick rip. It's, they've sold the stickers with it? Yeah, they're, they're proudly talking about it. action figure holding the severed penis in his hand even. But this scene's crazy. It's like a Friday the 13th like side of the highway scene. Like, you know, in uh, part four where she's eating the uh, banana. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's this guy who pulls over to on smoke his a joint. Yeah, on his motorbike. Yeah, has to take a piss. Take a piss. His Bigfoot yoinks him out of the bushes. And just comes out of the bush. First thing he goes to, goes right for yeah, the crotch. No fight, just one rip. Rips it right out and then holds it. And then the guy's running away. And you and think that's it. Then the guy stumbles over to his bike and is just <laughs> bleeding all over it. Yeah. This is a lewd movie. You said it was supposed to be PG or yeah, something? Yeah, and so they kind of talk about it. There's uh, two discs of special features, two feature-length 
bits of content and then many more on there. I'm surprised they fit all of the content in there. But yeah, the director, it was originally conceived of as more of a PG cycle because most of the Bigfoot movies were sort of family friendly because it was more just like, you know, 80 minutes of people in the woods and then 10 minutes of a Bigfoot looming in the background, POV shots, and that's it. So this was kind of supposedly conceived that way, but then they test audience did or whatever. They, I think they released it even and it didn't make any noise. So then they, I think someone else maybe bought the rights to it. And then they shot a whole bunch of like, they beefed up all of the attack sequences with a whole bunch of insert sort of gore footage. And even I think they added a couple extra deaths in there too, but it's just like insane <laughs> how gory and violent it is for a movie that was supposed to be like PG rated. And then sexual, it got no spoilers. And but. then yeah, the, the last act, like Ooh. if you're in there for the, like just as a crazy gory, almost slasher-esque Bigfoot movie, but then the last act gets incredibly lurid and- European. <laughs> yeah, let's just say European, the beast kind I mean, of, yeah. La bête. <laughs> la bête. <laughs> So yeah, it gets even crazier. Uh, so it's just a wild ride the whole time. And then the extra features on this thing are insane. This release is so stacked and impressive that I was, I was on a set last week. I just bombarded three people with it. I was just like, okay, seriously, this needs to be in your life. Like this, you need to know of its existence and have this tomb of its history at home. Yeah, like, and it had some release on DVD in the past or whatever, but it was always kind of like a midnight movie, like just a small featureless disc. For this to be two discs, like, fully packed, and, like, they were putting all this merch out for and it. they like, restored missing elements. This was, well. like, Severin's crown jewel of their Black Friday, where I, I was just happy to get a VHS rip on a torrent site, like, 10 years ago to see the, the, the infamous scene, right? And here they restored it from, like, a, a, a print and everything. It was just amazing look. Look, they've got the director involved. They got one of the director's full feature films on there. Another lost film of his. So just an amazing restoration. Love, love the work they're doing. So much passion for that stuff. Well, shoot, doggy, I got a Severin movie oh. up next. Wild oh. Betas, Wild Beasts. <laughs> it's in the cat area. Oh Christ! This one is a little European as well. Okay, this is definitely <laughs> European. This is from the brains behind the Mondo Kane movies, or is it Kana, Mondo? Mo yeah, I just call them Mondo. And I can't watch them. They're all like Faces of Death style, yeah. like uh, uh, rituals from around the world cut, cut in with, um, you know, at real deaths of, it's, it's not my thing, but this is no. a narrative film. Wild Beast is their only narrative film. There are some real deaths in there. There is. We'll get to that. <laughs> okay. So, I, I'm afraid of movies that have real animal deaths in them, but yeah. I really, I really like Italian movies, and uh, so sometimes That's you we have, have to wrestle with as a cannibal Holocaust fan. Yeah. yeah. It's like you got to live in the gray. It's like yeah. I'm a meat eater too. It's like it sucks. They're in you there. Gotta appreciate a film for the time and exactly. you know, when, when it came out, the rules that they had there. Yes. The old so western politics and the aside, that exactly. Died, like you know, Howard Hawks film. If you yeah. really want to get into that yeah. conversation, let's talk about all those westerns, even into the nineties. That okay. Oh yeah. Steven Spielberg one that was shooting here. here. Horses drowned. Yeah. 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 
Like into in, the West. I that's believe. right. Yes. It happens all the time, man. It's just anyway. Let's not talk about that. But Italian <laughs> cinema is controversial and confrontational. Now, I'd always kind of avoided this because I'd heard there was some real-life animal stuff in it. But I was watching Sean Baker's excellent Red Rocket, one of my favorite films of last year. And people might know Sean Baker's a huge Severn fan. He got to visit the Severn closet. Oh, and you can yeah. see that amazing video. He knows his shit. And there was a poster for this movie in the film. And it's like the only reference to like an existing film in the film, other than some porno titles that I'm sure are mostly made up. But... I was like, okay, I'm, if Sean Baker thought this was worth putting in there, I'm going to watch it. And I got it really cheap, too. Holy shit, man. It's like I'd seen Grizzly, Day of the Animal, pretty crazy. Roar, very crazy. We know this one, right? Uh, Melanie Griffith's parents having uh, real <laughs> lion attacks in their goofy little movie. But the animal stuff in this is so crazy, so dangerous, and just wild and unexpected. And there's visuals. I've never thought I'd see before. Hundreds of rats, swarming cars, moving as one, polar bear attacks. There's, oh my God, I just don't want to, I don't want to ruin it, but this movie's like wall to wall mayhem. Like, you know, Nightmare City? Uh, like Now you're speaking my language. It's like Nightmare City, but instead of zombies, it's animals from the zoo high on PCP. <laughs> There needs to be more high on PCP movies. Like every movie that I've seen where the killer is high on PCP, like Death Wish 2 or Home Sweet Home, it's just always a, a good time. Like, you know, like you yeah, you think so there would have been a renaissance when there was yeah. that PCP type drug that everyone was doing that was making them crazy for five minutes? Like, what was that, 10 years ago? Flipping cars or bath salts? Yeah, yeah, bath salts. Yeah, yeah. There's not enough bath salt movies either. <laughs> PCP sounds cool. So go. just make a bath salt movie, yeah, but yeah, call yeah. it PCP. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I haven't dug into special features on this, but there's a plenty and I want to know more about it, especially acting alongside some of these really dangerous animals and uh, working with probably some of these very dangerous directors. Can you perhaps leave that in my house for just, just one view and then I'll, I'll give it back? Oh, it's empty, you it's monster! It's in the player. I, I started watching the features oh, last no. night and I was too lazy to plop it up. <laughs> well, you better bring it back Why don't you just time. buy it? I'll buy it for you for I'm your... I'm a cheapskate. Uh, your baby's coming. You got a new baby coming. I'll buy it for you for your welcoming gift. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I am a cheapskate, so I like to watch movies on Tubi or streaming if I can. But I mainly like to watch stuff on Tubi. We were talking a bit about with... Uh, our previous guest here about PM Entertainment stuff, but another gem I found on Tubi, my next pick is uh, Alan Moyle, the great Canadian director's first Hollywood work called Times Square from 1980. Pammy and Nikki found each other and themselves on the streets of New York. Now, the whole city is going to share their exhilaration. The venue will be Times Square. You're a fan of this one, Cam. I love this film. The vibes are strong. It's a hangout movie with cool girls, cool music, amazing fashion, and some truly authentic New York footage. Yeah. Pre-Giuliani New York footage. Yeah, and the cool thing is is that the film is celebrating that. Like, usually it was like, you know, Friday the 13th, you know, Jason Takes Manhattan. It's like, it was it's talking about what a cesspool New York City was. In this film, it's about two runaway girls who meet up in a hospital and then run away and decide to, like, start a band and, and t you know, underground take over the scene there or whatever of Times Square. But also to kind of save Times Square because... Uh, the one of the girl runaways' dads is like trying to clean up New York and remove the sort of live nude girl signs and all the the unsavory pictures that are there. You know, there, there's a 
ads for snuff on the on the wall or like a, not actual snuff the no the film snuff. snuff the 1976 one that pretends to be snuff but it's clearly not because it's shot from several different angles and multiple cuts but anyway um you know they're like championing that and trying to like yeah the show outsider that. culture that we're all looking back on now and going oh the grindhouse days how cool that would have been like even if it was yeah. gross the characters it would have brought with it would have been so interesting, and this movie shows some of those. Yeah, types of and characters. it's a real like it shows that you know it's tough like people like some characters die of an overdose in there, and they talk about the trauma that they have with that. But they also celebrate this like this is the one place for us to be who we are and to live out our joys and dreams or whatever. So it's like a really positive thing. And even at the end, the police are helping them out. Like there's like this thing where you don't see them these movies today, but it feels like the whole New York seen there like we're all working together to preserve what was there rather than like knock it down or use it for cheap thrills like again like what happened you go to Times yeah. Square now and it's, it's exactly what they were afraid up. of in that yeah. movie it, there's no there's no charm character there anymore so amazing soundtrack I can't believe they have it in there and I think that's why there's no physical release that's why it's only on Tubi just like Little Darlings you can watch Little Darlings yeah. streaming but the soundtrack you can't get the format rights for Fuck you, John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he'll hear that. <laughs> yeah, I probably won't. Yoko, you uh, took that one to the, the Lennon estate. Yeah, Lennon. But I think yeah. Little Darlings and Times Square kind of kind of cut from the same cloth. 1980, I'd say. same year. Yeah, but yeah, and then two kind of like stronger female characters that aren't sexualized. Well, I mean, Little Darling, they're doing the sexualizing, but like it's like they are powerful characters on their own and independent and actually young. Like the one actress is like 13 years old yeah. in that movie. Like, and she's the lead. Like it's pretty. And there's such a charm with just letting stuff. them be themselves, you know? Yeah. And so this great Canadian unsung director, Alan Moyle, who did more famously pump up the volume and empire records, you know, this is like, he started indie as hell. It started indie and you, you see the interesting stuff that's in pump up the volume empire records are in times square, but like, you know, it's so authentic. Like his film before that, The Rubber Gun, where you feel like you're right on the streets with them. And the end credit says, you know, filmed entirely in New York City. So beautiful film. Yeah, it's just the only way to watch it is on Tubi. So that's why I would buy the disc if I could, but yeah. it's not available. So get ready to see those Dak Shepard, Kristen Bell uh, ads a whole bunch. Oh, so I yeah. keep getting those. I get like that repeated four times in yeah, a row on Tubi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to watch this movie again. It's been a while. It's, a, it's so good. Yeah. I actually got a movie. It's funny. I had no idea what you were going to pick. I have a movie here that's similar to Times Square. Strong, two strong female characters. Puberty Blues, baby. On Cronulla Beach, there are two great natural resources. The waves and the curves. The boys come here for the waves. The girls come here for the boys. Don't take any bicycles on my back, all right? But the girls aren't welcome on Cronulla Beach until they pass the test. In the classroom, and most important of all, at the movies, in the back of the van. A story of discovery, fun, and freedom in the universal language of growing up. I love Puberty Blues, a Bruce Burstford film. This guy did Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, you thought we would mention a Driving Miss Daisy on a Cuff podcast? Seriously, I'd never seen any of his movies. This was kicking around on Criterion Channel, and I watch every coming-of-age movie from the 70s and 80s that I can't because they're such a nice time capsule, usually some fucking and partying and beach antics 
And uh, so I, I watched this blind, knew nothing about it other than the great title. And uh, it's from the Australian new wave of the time. And the best way to describe this is kind of like Last American Virgin from the ladies' perspective. Totally, yeah. But in Australia. And on an awesome beach, most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it follows And these shot in 23901, like really beautiful, beautiful cinematography. cinematography. Yeah. But yeah, and it's just, it's about these two girls that, are, that were nerdy and want to come out of their shell and see that the way to come out of their shell is to seduce and do whatever the surfer boys want, which sadly gets a little dark, but leads to some opportunities of growth and empowerment for these ladies and it ends in a kind of a really inspiring way it's great coming of age movie beautiful and lurid too like it's really feels like the way teens party you know yeah it was pretty frank yeah, yeah. i was surprised because again bruce beresford like is going to be restored with the original theatrical cut so you don't get those gross comic oh wait is that the one before warriors 2 no no <laughs> <laughs> We and they're doing a box set with After Dark, My Sweet. That's going to be great. And a bunch of 90s, 90s noir thrillers. Yeah. Volume 1, so there's going to be more one. coming so out. So hopefully one with Last Seduction or Red Rock West. Red Rock West, that's what it's all about. But in the meantime, yeah, check out Puberty Blues. If It's on Canopy? Yeah. Yes. Watch it. Yeah. Watch it. Great. Yeah. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I told Rhett to watch it. He took his time, but he watched it with, with Kate. Yes, yeah, and my what wife. My think? wife enjoyed it as well. Too. Did she? She was. She again was surprised at how honest it was, or like unpredictable. Like there's some, you know, there's a death in it, and you know, there's there's some pretty heavy stuff that it goes. It's not just a hangout movie, you know. There's some some growth as you as you mentioned. So great one. I guess Fast Times at Ridgemont High is probably a, a good example of yeah. this type of film. But I felt that movie did its lady characters a little dirty. Yeah, I was gonna say they're yeah. No, they're, this one like is entirely. They're from not the objectified in this one. They're they're objectified in Fast Times. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. They're not objectified in Puberty Blues. No, they are within the context of the movie, but not within the filmmaking. You know. But they're trying to. They they're realizing that they have. They think they have to do that to get boys, and then that's part of the lesson that yeah. they learn is that they don't, or the type of boys they're going to get is not <laughs> who they want to be with. You so know? good, so, man. Great. Need great. more honest coming of age. I guess they have Euphoria now, but that doesn't feel honest. Like it feels like a great. Gatsby version of teenage life, <laughs> right? Like yeah. there's no acne or hangovers in like Euphoria. It's like everyone doesn't look like, like Zendaya. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like always pumping. And <laughs> yeah. I guess I have another coming of age one again. We didn't really line this up, but uh, my pick. It's a box set of three of them, but I guess the only one I watched so far was the uh, the first turn on. Way back. And remember your first turn on? Yes, it's the first turn on! The new smash comedy that will make your wildest dreams come true. If you wish hard enough, your dream can come true. Wow! Yes, what happens when four innocent kids at summer camp and their older, more mature nature counselor... Oh, since Mia! trapped in a cave-in and must wait to get rescued. They'll have their first turn-on! Let's party! Wow! This is a sexy box, The right? sexy box, yeah. It's from Troma. It's three early Troma films before they kind of became the Troma brand with like, you know... With the gore. Toxic before they waste threw the gore and gore in. and, you know, the, the Tromaville. These are the sex ones. comedies that These Lloyd are the talks sex, about. early sex comedies, uh, but... Still that trauma stamp of being irreverent, um, 
you know, being pretty frank about sexuality. So the movie that I watched the first turn on, the one I recommend, is, uh, you know, about a bunch of campers that get stuck in a cave with their uh, teacher. And then they are thinking they're going to die because they're running out of oxygen. So they, because they always have sex on the mind, they decide to share their first stories of their first time. And then we kind of see like an anthology sort of thing of each one of their stories play out in a, in a little vignette. And then there's, you know, uh, an ending that kind of brings it all back together or whatever. But a lot of fun little, uh, again, ruminations on being a teenager and the sort of journeys that they take, the pratfalls, some funny gags with it, you know, and the exaggeration. And, you know, it's just kind of a, a, a kind of a more of a quaint trauma, but a nice kind of coming of age one rather than the full. Well, there's that energy in Toxie too, right? Like when they'll cut to the antics of the bullies uh, and Melvin right. for the transformation. Yeah. But they're yelling all the time. Yeah, like, it's like a yeah. Happy Days episode in a way. Like he's trying to go for like a musical, raunchy Happy Days style vibe. Yeah, it has like a drive in, like a Crown International, like a late 70s drive in. Amplified, vibe. cartoony. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, there's like yeah, a lot of like goofy slapstick and stuff in there too. And he always wanted people dancing. Maybe that came later. No, no, I, yeah. ever since you guys, Cody Cook, the resident trauma expert of Calgary, mentioned that. And so I, I did notice like in the background, there's just a random shot on the docks of talking to some one of the person's parents, like, where are my kids? You know, and then in the background, there's like four kids just dancing in the background the whole time, you know, and it's just like, that's the thing. Give your movies life all the time, right? And Lloyd was the king of just having that energy. Like no matter what, well, is. maybe too much energy sometimes, but always energy, right? Which is always fun, yeah. fun to fun to experience, right? So the first turn on is a great one. There's two more in this box set, Waitress and Stuck on You. And this leads us to our last point though. Let's get controversial. Okay. <laughs> There's too many friggin' disc errors in releases these days. This one- All the time. Waitress, we have to mail it back to get a new one. Or do they just mail you one? No, they're mailing one, Everyone's but you have to their own sign process. up for one. Friday the 13th, they messed up two of the discs there. That was a year ago, man. I got all yeah. these recent ones. Red and I oh, were just I talking. Know, but I'm saying I have it's... four tabs on my phone of discs I need to replace. This is a hidden pandemic that we're dealing with right now. <laughs> the one that's going on, that it cannot be stopped and it's spreading to every company. Don't rush to release date, man. It's killing the video game industry. Why do I need to yeah. mail you proof that I just destroyed my Citizen's Kane Blu-ray, so I get another Blu-ray from you that I might never watch. My time is precious. Yeah, so most of the ones, it's you have to go to a website and say, yes, I got the disc, here's my proof of purchase. Yeah, you gotta send them a photo of the receipt, so you gotta dig up the receipt or the old email. But with Criterion, you actually had to show you were destroying a disc. Like, yeah. where- Cut it in half. <laughs> we have this climate emergency, and you know we're trying to not fill landfills yeah. up, and Criterion's like, yeah, just, Show me that you're throwing well, that's the thing what in the I trash hate most, and ruining man. this movie. Yeah, it's like I feel <laughs> yeah. the guilt of all the plastic that I oh, consume yeah. by collecting. Why I feel enough of that guilt, and now I fucking gotta do it again, like unknowingly contribute to it with with these reissued discs. Trauma, vinegar syndrome, Severin, yeah. Gino, I've got Mad Max, Scream Factory. Every company's doing it, and it's happening all the time. And it's like just, well, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand the internal quality. Logistics. Check your stuff. Yeah. You it know? would cost you so much less to just do one more round of QC yeah. than to have this these bad PR moves where people got to mail you their mutilated disc. And you're putting out Citizen Kane or Escape from LA, like you want to watch those movies more than once. So watch it one more time before and you send it out. And it's the fans who are getting hit hard because they yeah. pre-order it, right? They're like, oh, I can't wait. And yeah. it's like, oh, right, I have a shittier product. It's exactly yeah. what happened to the video game industry. Yeah. And I know, that the, I know that the physical media collecting industry is like a small blip on the economic radar, so not that many people <laughs> give a shit. Yeah. But 
we have kids now. It's a pain in the fucking ass. It's hard enough keeping those discs uncracked, let alone <laughs> having to crack them to prove that <laughs> destroyed them. Yeah, I guess those are the ones I'll give to my son. You can ruin this one here. It's fine to chew <laughs> on it. <laughs> Scratch Citizen Kane, Blu-ray number two. So anyway, watch Waitress when you, when it gets re-released and re-sent out. But he, even another error with this release too, when, when I opened it up, I opened up the first turn on to watch it and inside that packaging was the waitress. Uh, so they had mixed up the packaging even inside the packaging. So it's just like, take a little care, you know? Yeah, I mean, to play devil's advocate, we're probably talking about small staffage here. Oh, yeah. Like, but these boutique labels, some of them some are... some pride in the work, though, Some of these you know? boutique labels are one or two people, maximum, you know, five or six. Respect the great films that you're preserving here. You know, they, they have a legacy. It's the almighty release schedule. It, it's, it ruins things. It's like... Yeah. And frankly, I don't care if I get my alligator 4K three weeks later. I just want it at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, same. I usually <laughs> I, wait for I the hope sales. Most of the yeah. people feel the same way, but who knows what it's like? You know what it is? They're probably listening to the internet people too much. The internet people going, "What? You changed release date, or you changed? You removed this, or you did this?" And so they're what? holding themselves too accountable to the vocal minority. And yeah, part of the problem is we're just have a bigger eye on everything that we're watching. So like, you know, for Friday the 13th, they'll look at one shot that's different from a, a, a Blu-ray disc from that sort the source material they were happened to have scanned. And so then they're being forced to find, you know, that, that one single shot and restore it in, in a better way. Whereas before we would just be happy we got that film and no one would be fact checking that. Or maybe one person would write an IMDb review or something, not to the point where we're like petitioning and forcing. Yeah, but now it's a, now it's a toxic Facebook comments thread. Yeah, on Dawn of the Discs. Of just making fun of the people. Oh, yeah, MVD has in one that they, they're Jack Frost 2 they messed up. That's not uncut. Oh, right, it's not uncut. So, you know, it's just like, yeah, it just seems like every company is getting raked for it. But, I mean, I guess that's telling you take more time to release your movies and, you know, make sure that you're doing the quality control so they're not going to be uh, messed up when you do release them because that's probably going to yeah. make them lose a bunch of yeah, money. Yeah, don't listen to the yeah. trolls that were like, I need that on the Tuesday or I need that a week earlier. Yeah. It's like, it's fine to take your time. It's totally fine. Although I know some of the companies like Severin, uh, I think Vinegar Syndrome too, like they're under a bigger distribution wing that forced them to have certain release dates so they can do the pre-sale windows. St yeah, right. So I guess we're not really talking to Severin. We're talking to the Right, because they, they have promises to stores to put them on a certain shelving, I imagine. Yeah. Certain times. Yeah. So. This is the nerdiest conversation we've ever <laughs> yeah. had on this podcast. Everyone's tuned up five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, this is the type of shit we normally talk listening. about. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. <laughs> but in all honesty, it is, yeah, it's good to be back. And Rhett's about to have his second child coming up here. So yeah. we don't know when the next one is, though. It'll definitely be before the April festival. But thanks to everyone for listening and uh, well wishes to Rhett and Kate. And yeah, always follow us on uh, what, Facebook. Get the newsletter. Get the Cuff newsletter. Uh, it's a great newsletter. It's always got opportunities, ticket giveaways. Check them out in the theater when you can. Yeah, and go open, go back to the cinemas. I mean, there's not a lot of great stuff playing, but there's some pretty good stuff. I wish that new Texas Chainsaw Massacre was in cinemas. Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about that today, but maybe another time. We can talk about it. It's in the outro. The new <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre is now out on Netflix. We tried to get it for the cuff. 
Halloween marathon. Oh, did you? That would we always awesome. get ghosted by Netflix. Oh, so uh, yeah. sorry. We that tried. was a little early, probably before. It, was it? No, they had an October release date. Oh, did they? Yeah, this okay. movie's been pushed around, and oh, uh, I guess okay. the director who ended up finishing this movie started a week into it. Oh yeah. So some stuff from the Evil shot. Dead dudes were originally wrote the script and directed the first. Well, they movie. produced it too, so I imagine they stayed on in some capacity. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we can chat about it a little bit. It's kind of like the new Halloween movies where they're trying to reboot the franchise a little bit while bringing back one of the uh, Scream Queens is now... Although Marilyn Burns is dead, so they brought someone who just looked like what uh, old Marilyn Burns would be. But hey, why not? Yeah, so it's very much in the new in the vein of the new Halloweens, but like much gorier. It is very gross. Really well shot too. And yeah. one of my favorite things is lean and mean. Like it's 83 minutes with credits. So it's like a fast watch. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of- And it's mean. Extra exposition. It's a mean movie, yeah. 100%. Like, yeah, and there's some really nice, nice set characters. pieces. Like it's not just gore for gore's sake. Like there's some really well designed sequences where, you know, there's a chase through the the basement or bottom underneath the deck of a oh, house. Oh yeah, or that was so cool. Yeah, and you know, there's a huge bus massacre attack on there where it's like really well shot and made and pretty elaborate. So. And the Colin Stetson score is beautiful. I almost wanted to watch it again for that because yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's so short. I could watch it again and not be too concerned of with wa having wasted my time in the near future. Yeah, and my one of my big things, and we were talking about a little bit with A24, is like there's a self-seriousness to everything now. It has to be elevated and, and all the characters have to be like super serious and they've dealt with a lot of trauma and you have to like, you just have to be sad for them and mad about it the whole movie. Whereas this movie is just like, here's some characters, they have dealt with some trauma, but we're also gonna kind of poke fun at some of these characters too and, and still realize that you're here for a horror movie, you're here to watch people die in creative ways and have and some fun. there are some creative <laughs> way, weapon uses in this film. I love that he got to throw the hammer and slide oh, yeah. the chainsaw around the ground and uh, <laughs> yeah, the septic, septic line busting when oh, they're under right. the house. Yeah. It's gnarly. Yeah, and you're driving through that weird dead plant in a field or whatever. There's some really nice set pieces there, too. In the it. script has some dumb stuff, too, though. We don't oh, certainly. I mean, but I mean, I don't know. I'm never going there for high high art, you know, social commentary in every line of my films. When you when you got to fall in the footsteps of TCM, too, you know? it's. I mean, but it's crazy. I was looking back. It's a relatively strong franchise and relatively consistent franchise i haven't seen the new leatherface um yeah with his time um, as a it's youth. on amazon prime is it yeah okay i'll watch yeah. that now yeah but all the others i've and i've either loved or enjoyed and this one i'll add to enjoyed and maybe the secret is just always having a different director at the helm well besides the first two but even the second one is a canon <laughs> film. completely different movie it's not a toby hooper film as much as a, you know it's just a gonzo crazy ride but yeah i feel like everyone is like the henkels wrestling the script back every now and then they have their own voice in it but you chart each one from the first one to leatherface texas chainsaw massacre 3 i guess there's two leather this is another pet peeve is that every title like there's two movies in this franchise called called leatherface yeah. there's three movies called the texas chainsaw massacre or yeah. an iteration between with a space uh, in between a chain and saw. even if you take the 3d away from the other one, oh yeah right? that one's texas chainsaw they've like milked that word as much as you possibly can but yeah everyone is pretty entertaining in its own weird way we used, yeah. we were, were pretty big fans of Texas Chainsaw 3D. It's not the Hellraiser franchise, right? They haven't fucked it up yet. Too yeah, bad. And, or, yeah, like a super low budget just <laughs> doing it to keep the rights. It feels like it's just, you know, 
every different person is getting the rights and they're trying to make their own best version of it. Platinum Dunes took two cracks at it. You know, I don't know who did this most recent one uh, beyond Netflix picking it up, but you know. Bad like, ombre. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's yeah, the Evil okay. Dead Dudes company. Oh, that's their, okay, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. It was, it was, yeah, let's it was add this fun. to the streaming suggestions. It was pretty, sure. it was good. Bonus pick. Damn gross too, though. That's what I really liked was just, this was gnarly. Gross, nihilistic, and cut to the point, quite literally. But the first 20 minutes are a bit of a slog, so uh, don't put it on too late. I'd say like 9 o'clock. I don't know. I still was entertained for that first bit because you know what's coming. It's, it's really stylishly shot. So the director uh, was a cinematographer before. Oh, no wonder it looks so damn that. good. So really slick sort of look, both in terms of the lighting and the, the way the camera's moving around. So it's a pretty dynamic movie. Well, shit, that bonus content just showed how happy we are to be back on the CuffCast. Yeah. Uh, listeners at home who may have submitted their films for consideration for the Calgary International Film Festival, thank you so much. We're still making decisions. We're killing some darlings, but uh, should have the lineup out, you know, sometime in March. So, yeah, stay tuned. And, uh, yeah, hope to have another CuffCast episode to you. I don't know, month, two months? We'll birth it when it comes. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to Peter for joining us. Peace out. Bye-bye. Let's cruise.